Today we're going to explore the concepts of God and gender, and we're going to do so primarily from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, specifically chapter 1 and verse 27, which reads this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What Genesis is presenting to us is a claim about the way the world is, the way God designed it and the intention he has for people in it. And while this might be a simple thing to overlook today or move on from, it's actually a big deal. To even use words like male and female as absolute descriptions of persons is actually a challenging notion in today's world. So we're making space to, to camp out here in Genesis 1 and examine the world we live in as well as the world that God has created and is in the process of recreating. And I want to play my cards up front. I am, Let me show you where I'm going. There, there are two questions I'm going to end with, and, th and they are these. Number one, what does it look like for me to fight for relationship, not fight in relationship, but fight for relationship with those who think differently than me? And number two, is Jesus trustworthy even when I don't have answers for all of my questions? Now, and I realize these two questions could be asked of any topic, but over the next few minutes, you'll see why I'm specifically asking them about this topic. So a few introductory words of caution and, and expectation as we begin today. First, this subject today is going to be deeply personal for some of you, which could be a problem. Like there are real life experiences that you've had that have brought you inside conversations like the ones uh, with the LGBTQ plus community um, that have, you know, that have, that are not easy. There's legitimate pain that, that you've experienced with a church or with Christians. And, and even to listen to, to me, to listen to a Christian pastor is a challenge for you. And so if you're here, and especially if we have never met in person, I want you to know, I acknowledge the respect that you are showing and I'm grateful for it. And, and I hope that there's something from our time that is helpful for you, even if we end up disagreeing at the end. A second thing I want to acknowledge is that for some, this subject is going to be impersonal for you, which could also be a problem. You aren't living inside uh, some of these more complex conversations. There aren't any, say, transgender people uh, in your social sphere, your friends or your family. And so the idea of understanding the, the nuances of these realities is going to take a bit of patient work to, to understand and to, to interact with. So I hope that there's something helpful that comes from our time today if you're, if you're in that place, even if we don't end up agreeing by the end either. But whoever you are, I think we can agree on something, that this is maybe not the ideal venue for this conversation, uh, or, to, or even to discuss topics about life or faith or the Bible. In fact, as, as I look at the space we're making today to explore the realities of some of the first words of the Bible, I realize there's gonna be moments of discomfort, of complexity, and it's gonna be mixed with questions and responses that would be better discussed in the context of relationship. So in other words, as we discuss God and gender today, I wish that for some of you, I could have this conversation one-on-one, face-to-face, enjoying an Americano together somewhere, and you know, I would honestly welcome that. If nothing else, I would consider this time a success if someone, 
like yourself perhaps, uh, tracks me down and gives me permission to listen to your experience as a follow-up to what we're gonna do today. So, let's do some of the necessary work to get on the same page about the world that we live in as we start this conversation. And, and while I feel as though I've you know, engaged and researched the complexities of this aspect of our world at length, I, I still am, am concluding that there's a lot I am learning and a lot that I have yet to understand. Questions that I'm asking that I don't have answered yet. But I want to acknowledge two things in this conversation to help us out in our time today. Number one, the concept of gender is bigger than I often realize. In his book, Embodied, Preston Sprinkle helps us with some important clarifying definitions. We're going to need to keep these in mind throughout the course of our time today. So first, gender identity describes the psychological aspects associated with being male or female, or one's internal sense of self as male, female, both, or neither. Gender identity. Second, gender role describes the social and cultural aspects of being male or female, sometimes shorthanded as masculinity and femininity. So when discussing Genesis and gender, the conversation is a bit larger than we might realize because of these distinctions. So amidst concepts of gender identity and gender roles, we have ongoing debates about the roles of men and women in the home in the church, in the workplace, the, the ongoing pursuit of justice and human rights amidst inequality and abuse. Yes, even within faith communities. And in addition to all of this, the experience of people identifying as transgender. So it's important to understand what we mean by this term as well. So Christian psychologist Mark Yarhaus also provides a really helpful definition here in his really insightful book, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. He says, to discuss being transgender is to discuss one's experience of gender identity, one's sense of oneself as male or female, and how that psychological and emotional experience is not aligning with one's birth sex. When we refer to a person's sex, we are commonly making reference to the physical, biological, and anatomic dimensions of being male or female. These facets include chromosomes, gonads, sexual anatomy, and secondary sex characteristics. Sex is frequently distinguished from gender. Gender refers to the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female. Now, you might not like or agree with Yarhouse's definitions, but they are the ones that seem to be the most widely agreed upon and used right now. And it's important to keep these in mind. There's one more important piece to this, so again, to look to Yarhouse. Transgender is an umbrella term for the many ways, the many ways in which people might experience and or present and express or live out their gender identities differently from those whose sense of gender identity is congruent or matches is consistent with their biological sex. So we, we have these terms which can be difficult to remember or to understand, let alone all of the others that we could define and describe like gender dysphoria, gender fluid, gender queer, non-binary, intersex, to just name a few. And we also have a variety of experiences from simply preferring different pronouns, he, him, she, her, they, them, to hormone therapy and to surgical procedures. So again, I say, the discussion about God creating us male and female clearly needs to be handled with extra care and thoroughness than perhaps ever before. 
And a second thing I want to acknowledge in this conversation is that what I see happening with gender is one of the many factors that is contributing towards people, like my friends, abandoning Christianity. Consider this recent conclusion posted a few weeks ago from the Barna Research Group. The proportion of millennial Christians who feel the Christian church is harmful or detrimental has doubled between 2019 and 2021. As a millennial myself, this study has made a statistic out of what I already knew from personal experience. And, and Christian beliefs, many of which tracing back to the book of Genesis, are connected with these cultural shifts and gender being a large one of, of those. So for example, just thinking about the concept of gender roles, there's been sort of a religious trauma connected to the preaching and the practice around masculinity and femininity. In particular, uh, to use the language of a, of a popular podcast about the Mars Hill story, the things we do to women. The classic definition of sexism, for example, is the economic exploitation and or social domination of members of one sex by another. And specifically, I would say especially, of women by men. It's when women are discriminated against, when they are stereotyped, when there is prejudice just because they are women. Misogyny or having a misogynistic attitude or being misogynistic in behavior all relates to having a negative attitude towards women. And the word misogynist literally means someone who is a hater of women. As author and pastor James Emery White puts it, what is disturbing in the minds of many is the perception that the Christian faith is deeply sexist. And personally, I know that this perception is anchored in observation. Like if you're a woman in the church, this likely is not a surprise to you. If you're in the process of deconstructing a faith you've been handed down, you likely are, are, are questioning the area of gender and gender roles. And if you haven't yet, you likely will need to. The experience of gender roles has made disgusting places like Genesis 1.27 very important. But again, it's not just about gender roles. Think also about the concept of gender identity. Uh, one person I spoke to just this past week was, who's inside this conversation, for whom this is, this is deeply personal, talked to me about how for the, the 2S LGBTQ plus community, for the T, for the transgender person, a relationship with the church is especially, or maybe even the most, difficult. Consider, consider this quote from the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission. We believe it is indispensable to deconstruct the binary sex slash gender system that shapes the Western world so absolutely that in most cases it goes unnoticed. For other sexualities to be possible, it is indispensable and urgent that we stop governing ourselves by the absurd notion that only two possible body types exist, male and female, with only two genders inextricably linked to them, man and woman. We make trans and intersex issues our priority because their presence, activism, and theoretical contributions show us the path to a new paradigm that will allow as many bodies, sexualities, and identities to exist as those living in this world might wish to have with each one of them respected, desired, and celebrated. When you place yourself inside the conversation with real names, real faces, 
you, you, you start to understand why this posture is taken. Like, I get it. I, I know why it's there. These, these factors of the church's relationship in, in concepts of gender, roles, and gender identity put me as a millennial man who follows Jesus in, oftentimes in an awkward space. For example, uh, terms like Christian or evangelical are terms I am, like right now, admittedly, personally avoiding, especially when talking to strangers or people I know don't follow Jesus yet. Because there's, there's baggage, a lot of what I th- which I think is legitimate baggage, that can, that can kill a conversation because these terms are, are difficult to define and have caused a lot of problems because of what they're associated with. Now, that may not be your experience, but it's the one that I'm discovering more frequently than, than ever before. So I think it's inescapable to say that the negative past and present realities surrounding gender identity and gender roles, however they occurred, need to be acknowledged for the part they've played in in contributing to the disillusionment and the deconstruction and the drifting from Christianity and perhaps even Jesus himself that people are experiencing. So in light of all of that just brief discussion about our culture and and the time in which we live, what do we do with the biblical text? So let's go back to, to, to Genesis. Let's remember what's going on here. Every culture has a narrative that explains or makes sense of existence. So Genesis is that for us. As followers of Jesus, this is the story that makes sense of our story. This is a story that can shape our story. And a big question that these verses address is, what does it mean to be human? It means, as we talked about last week in our series, and as we'll see in Genesis 1, 27, that we are all made male and female in the image of God. It's the image of God, the imago Dei, that gives human beings objective and infinite value. Not our abilities, not our skin color, not even our gender. And when it comes to gender, we especially need to see today, like right now, the implications of this verse. As one scholar puts it, each individual, whether male or female, is in the image of God. But humanity cannot bear its image to the next generation apart from the contribution of the male and the female. Neither the male nor the female on their own can fulfill this mandate. So both men and women were made equally in the image of God, to reflect him, to represent him, to be in relationship with him. There's not more of the image of God in one gender than in another. And there's no foundation for sexism in the world that God has created and how God created the world and in the intent of God's creation for us as men and women. Genesis 1.27 is an incredible statement of purpose and value and equality. God created us in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. And immediately following these climactic words, we read this. In Genesis 1.31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So if we claim to hold a biblical worldview, we need to be very careful then about what we do with the concepts of gender roles and gender identity because we're talking about something God created and considers to be good and precious and beautiful. A biblical worldview leads to a positive view of the body. It says that the biological correspondence between male and female is part of the original creation. Sexual differentiation is part of what God pronounced very good, morally good. 
which means it provides a reference point for morality. There's a purpose in the physical structures of our bodies that we are called to respect. So look, we, we start Genesis 1 with galaxies and supernovas and trees and animals being spoken into existence. And then we end Genesis 1 with human beings and all of their incredibly complex biological and psychological functions being spoken into existence. So here's a question I'm asking myself as I see Genesis 1 unfold. Can I trust that the Creator's idea of good is actually good? Can I, can I trust that what God says is good is actually good? Like, am I willing, am I willing to trust that the galaxy engineering, DNA designing God, am I willing to trust him for the defining perspective on myself? Which, by the way, is a question to ask simply, like, like more broadly, actually, beyond gender. Is what God says worthy of our trust when it comes to any of our desires and struggles? Like, we're all, we're all out here chasing the authentic self and fighting for the liberty of, of defining that, determining it on our own. But, but for me, it doesn't seem like that's really satisfying. And I think that's true for our society. It doesn't seem satisfying to us. As one author puts it, we're drowning in freedom, but we're thirsting for meaning. And from the perspective of the Bible, the story from the start is that humans are made male and female in the image of God and that this is very good. According to the Bible, our identity is found not in our desires, but in our design, which is a freeing and good reality. Beyond Genesis, though, here, here's one of the main reasons I believe this is the strongest conclusion that makes sense of our existence. Because as a follower of Jesus, Jesus himself affirms the worldview of Genesis chapter 1. And this is where we need to lean in as followers of Jesus, especially if we're unsure of what to make around the current conversations about gender. So, because of my personal commitment to Jesus, here are three discipleship postures that I'm taking. Number one, as a follower of Jesus, I'm trusting that Jesus is the chief expert on speaking about human existence. Why? Because the Bible teaches that Jesus was there in Genesis 1, actively a part of making people in the image of God male and female. As John chapter 1 says, like flip over there for a moment. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. That's John's term for Jesus here. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So if you believe in Jesus, if we believe in Jesus, then we believe in the one who made all things and has both the authority and the ability to address our questions about human existence. And one such question appears in places like Matthew chapter 19, where a group of Jews called Pharisees ask him about divorce. And his general response to their specific question takes them back to our text, Genesis 1:27. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So look, while, while the author's intent in Genesis is not to specifically insert a voice into all of our current questions about masculinity, femininity, LGBTQIA2S plus conversations, Jesus' use of the creation framework reminds us again that this is the story that makes sense of our story. 
This is the narrative from Genesis that Jesus considers to be normative in Matthew thousands of years later. This is the narrative that Jesus believes defines our existence and it's not relevant just in ancient history, it's relevant now. And I realize though that even in talking about this, that this is a lot easier for some of us to accept than others. If you've listened to sermons before, if you grew up in a Christian home before, if you went to a Bible camp before, if, if you're just kind of part of Christian culture in general, this is probably a bit easier for you to accept. And so, so I realized the, the, the tension that somebody who's maybe closer to some of these issues feels even in, in hearing some of these claims. So, so let's pause and take this to a place where it lands maybe most emotionally in our present experience. How does the worldview that Jesus claims is good impact our relationship to the transgender community? So could I, could I encourage you if, you, if you are there, if you're unsure about where you are, to give Jesus a shot, to come to, come to him, to, to, to figure out what's burdening you. And maybe it's not gender, maybe it's something else. To see that, that maybe he is trustworthy, even if I can't understand fully why. Because the second posture I'm taking as a follower of Jesus is this. I'm trusting that he completely understands the human experience. Let's go back to, to John 1 for a moment. We read that Jesus was there at the beginning and that he created us. But we also read this. And the word, again Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What the Bible teaches is that the fully divine Son of God completely entered human existence and is full of grace and of truth. And we know that for some in the trans community, their experience has been a difficult one. For a lot of reasons, but one of those reasons is because of dysphoria, which is a term that describes the, the distress that people feel when their internal sense of self doesn't match the body that they have. So, so look, amidst this, I'm willing to ask the question, does Jesus know something about feeling out of place on earth? Like, like Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus did not cling to equality with God. He emptied, he humbled himself, he, he, he gave up his divine privileges and he became a servant, he became a man. Could it be that Jesus is actually a safe place to bring your real struggles and real questions to, knowing that he gets you and that he's full of grace and of truth? Could it be, could it be that Jesus is actually a safer person to be real with than Christians themselves have sometimes taught or modeled or behaved around you? And in light, in light of who Jesus is, should it not be that the church could be the place that people could run towards to find compassion rather than flee from because they found condemnation? A third discipleship posture I'm taking is that as a follower of Jesus, I'm embracing the world that Jesus is already in the process of restoring. So look, we're in the series uh, that looks at what the Bible explains about the beginning of history, but the Bible also describes the end of history. And just look at one of these places from the last book of the Bible. I heard a shout from the throne. So this is in heaven. I heard a shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. So as heaven comes down to earth, this is what, what occurs. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. This Jesus 
the one who designed us, the one who gets us, the one who is in, already at work now to restore all things, cosmically, yes, but also individually. This is, this is the Jesus we're talking about. Renowned biblical scholar Richard Bauckham once said, biblical commands are not arbitrary decrees, but correspond to the way the world is and will be. So anything that God instructs us to do when it comes to gender aligns with the designs that God calls good at the start and will call good for eternity. This is why in a place like Colossians 3, we see a command followed by an alignment with reality. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. After what? After the image of its creator. Look, if we're Christians, we've entered into the story of God, a story that has placed us on a trajectory of transformation. So we're all entering and journeying in this story, incomplete, allowing what God says is good and true to, to shape and change us by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And in that place, we're increasingly looking at ourselves and others through the lens image of God. We're all in the process of putting our desire for self-identity aside in place of our real identity as God's creation, God's masterpiece, God's children. So whoever you are, whatever you are asking when it comes to gender identity or gender roles, you need to know that you could not be more valuable to God. So, so let me finish. With a, with a pastoral word. First, to those of us who are already convinced of a biblical worldview, who came in and, and this whole time have been like, yes, I, I agree with the perspective of the Bible and I'm living it, I'm trying to follow that. I, I myself am, am part of that group. Could we ask ourselves, what does it look like for me to fight for relationship with those who think differently than me? One of the things I'm learning is the value of listening. Listening, because our assumptions often drive our default reactions. So I'm, I'm learning that it's not good to, to hold many of those. Like, like I'm learning that if you've met one transgender person, you, you've really met one transgender person. Like every story, every experience is unique. So, so ask people to share. And look, let's give people permission to talk without requiring permission to talk back. Let's be people who listen. I'm learning that for a lot of things in life, transformation takes time. So we shouldn't expect people to immediately agree with or behave in all the ways that we ourselves might. And I know for many of us, this is hard. It's difficult to relate to people uh, because, because we're overwhelmed by what we don't understand. But, but as somebody who I heard from this week who has, who has more gay and lesbian and transgender friends than I do, this, this was super helpful. What he said was, you may not be able to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, but you can walk a mile with someone. So are there people that you could spend time with and fight for relationship with, even if they think differently than you or than me? And secondly, a, a pastoral word uh, to, those, uh, to those of us who are, who are not settled on the teaching of Jesus or are maybe unsure about the teaching of Jesus and feel the tension between, between all of these things right now. Could I, could I encourage you to identify what the barriers are to belief in Jesus? 
to giving your life to Jesus, could I, could I ask you to identify the frustrations you feel and then to patiently ask yourself the question, maybe with others that you, that you know and trust, is Jesus trustworthy even when I don't have answers for all of my questions? Whoever you are today, you are made by Jesus. You are made for Jesus. Track, track me down for that coffee sometime. <laughs>